Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. We've been doing this series called Through the Eyes. We've been seeing the view of God and ourself through the eyes of different Bible characters. Now, last week, uh, we talked about the prodigal son. Actually, two weeks ago now, we talked about the prodigal son. How many are familiar with that parable? And then the week before that, we talked about Eve and the creation story, the creation poem, really this different view that they had. And we came to this conclusion, we've been doing this each week, that they both had been tempted by shame. They were tempted to believe something that wasn't true about themselves. You know, a lot of times when we see these stories, we believe the first thing that we're tempted with is sin. But honestly, sin is a ramification, an outflow of shame. Because let me tell you something, if, if you don't believe who you truly are, then you'll operate out of that false identity. And so when you do, you see the repercussions. You know, a lot of times people say things like, how could that person do that? How can they speak like that? How could they treat someone like that? And my answer every time is, they've lost their true identity. They don't know who they are. See, when you're operating in true identity, which, by the way, is born out of love, changes everything. Changes how we think and we speak and we talk and how we treat others. That's a big thing we talk about here, and it's important. But we came to that conclusion that they both have been tempted by shame. The temptation was to believe the wrong story about themselves. Essentially, they lost their identity. And what happened? They both ended up hiding. Now, Eve was hiding amongst the trees of the garden. The prodigal was hiding in a life of wasteful living. Nonetheless, they both were in this state of hiding. And it all was a result of losing their identity and receiving shame. See, shame leads to this feeling or this sense of rejection. Anyone ever felt that without a show of hands? Just a sense of rejection in your life? Two stories this morning about myself. Number one, when I was about six or seven, both these stories are about the same time frame in my life. Um, I was about six or seven. Uh, how many are familiar with I-475? It runs from, I believe, like Grand Blanc area all the way to around Mount Morris and reconnects to 75. Well, they had done this in phases and they started it, I think the plans were like late 60s and then they started in the early 70s. About mid 70s, they had the two main sections done. Well, I was about six or seven when they were finishing up the last section and it literally was one block from my house. Are, are you guys remember? I don't know if it's there anymore. Uh, is it is that dairy right there? What's the dairy? McDonald's dairy? Yeah, is it still there? Remember McDonald's Dairy? I lived on Roosevelt Street. Like, I could look across and see that sign. There was that, um, that neon sign, McDonald's Dairy, right there. Well, they were literally digging this out. They had to, I think they bought up the houses and things on the block there. In fact, my dad was really hoping they would buy his house, but it stopped like three houses away. Yeah, right? So I can get out of here. But So here we are in Flint, 475. They're digging it out. Well, that spring, we had really heavy rains. And so for an east side Flint kid, I looked at it and went, it's a lake, you know? So all of us kids thought it was a lake and we were down there playing in it and it was kind of muddy and mucky, but for us it was like, hey man, it's hot out and we're going to cool off. So one day we're playing in this water and um, I, I irritated one of my friends. I don't know why he was mad at me. I had a big mouth and I ran it a lot. That's probably why. So he reaches down and he grabs this huge clump of mud and he throws it right at me. Well, as it's coming toward me, I didn't see it. I look up, it hits me square in the face. Not just the face, but it hits me right in the eye. Talk, yeah, ow, say it again, ow. 
it hurts so bad. I mean, you know, as a six, seven-year-old, you're just freaking out. I'm going to lose my sight. Oh, my gosh. And you can't get in my eyes anyway. I, I went in last week, get this, for an eye exam. So next week, I'll probably have glasses on. I'm like, what do you mean I need glasses? I'm not that old. <laughs> so they, it's that kid's fault who threw the mud. So it hits me in the eye, and man, it hurt. It was excruciating. And so I'm running home, I'm screaming, I'm yelling. My mom and dad are trying to console me. They're trying to rinse it out. I couldn't get my vision back, so they took me to the hospital. And, you know, in the course of time, they got me calmed down. I had to wear this eye patch for like a few weeks. I had to clean it daily. They had to put eye drops in. But you know what? Eventually, it got better. And through the love of my parents and, you know, the medical staff, we got it figured out. And it's like, it was good as new. It was fine, you know. Even though it hurt, it was good as new. Now, about the same time frame, I was, I believe, in first grade, second grade. And I would walk to school every day. And one day we're out in the playground. We would all play in the playground before the bell rang. And this day I felt really special. I was strutting my stuff because I had my favorite pair of pants on. It was these burnt orange corduroy bell bottoms. Anybody have any of those? The younger ones are like, what does that even mean, right? <laughs> Not anymore. But I had these burnt orange corduroy bell bottoms, and I was just like, check it out. Ding dong, you know, like this was so cool. <laughs> and, uh, but what I did realize was that there was this rule. It was called the no floods rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had these pants for probably a good year, year and a half. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, so I was wearing these thinking I was all great until one kid spotted that I had a problem called floods. So he yells across the playground. He says, hey, man. I'm like, what? He goes, is he talking to me? Uh, is there a flood coming? And I'm like, what is he talking about? A flood coming? That day I realized exactly what that meant. Because all the kids on the playground started joining in. Oh my gosh, check out the floods. Hey buddy, is a flood coming? I was so embarrassed. I remember I actually started to try to hold back the tears. I crawled underneath one of these little jungle gym things and just hid there. I just waited till the bell rang so all the kids would go in and then I could come out from my hiding and run home. I was running home just crying. I mean, I was humiliated. I, I just felt so horrible. And I remember coming home, and my parents consoled me and, and told me, listen, Andrew, it's okay. We'll get you some new pants. Everything will be fine. But, you know, even though my parents held me and they showed me love, I still felt hurt. There was still something deep in me that was hurt. See, the physical damage that I healed up from with the eye, everything was okay. But the emotional damage, well, let me just say this. I believe I carried that with me. Now, I don't even know I probably burned that pair of pants. But it did something to me. See, I felt rejection. How many of you have ever felt rejection in their life? You know, when my mom left when I was a young kid, remember she left and I felt like, wow, I wonder if she left because of me. And so there's my dad, single dad, raising us. Just these different elements of rejection in my life that I had to deal with. And I just got over it yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm trying to make us laugh so I don't cry. But we've all experienced, I believe, rejection in our lives. And it's important that we see that because this is what rejection does to us. It changes us. It, it makes us guarded and uncertain. Sometimes it even makes us suspicious of others. What do they really mean by that? And I believe that it drives us into one form of hiding or another. But why is it that rejection hurts us so deeply? 
I believe that the power of rejection comes from the way that we are wired as human beings. We are made for acceptance. We are made for acceptance. We are designed so that we come to life when we are accepted. Come on, we've all been in those situations where you don't feel accepted. You don't come alive. You kind of go within your shell. You might hide a little bit. But when people accept you, you come alive. And we see this in the life of Jesus. He accepted everyone. He accepted those that even the religious system of the time made outcasts and rejected. Even the disciples that he called to himself were rejects. How do I know? Because every young Jewish boy, when he came of age, would be inspected by the priest to see if maybe he could serve in the temple. If he wasn't up to snuff or he didn't qualify, he was told to go back to his father and learn his father's craft. Tax collectors, fishermen, not part of the priesthood, not part of the temple, they were rejects. And what did Jesus do? He called those that the world called rejects so he could say, no, I see something different in you. And he accepted them where they were. See, acceptance is huge. We need acceptance in our life. As a fish thrives and flourishes in water, as plants thrive and grow, human beings thrive and flourish in acceptance. We could put it this way. It's our native environment. That is where we grow. We are not much good and certainly not happy without it. We need acceptance. Think about this. Just like the serpent in the garden or the forces that convince the younger prodigal son, they know what happens to a fish when it's jerked out of water. And in the same way, what happens to us when we are taken out of acceptance? Because the ultimate strategy here against us is to convince us that we are not acceptable. Jesus came to say, yes, you are. Jesus came to say, you are acceptable. Somebody need to hear that this morning. Because some of us go through life and we just don't feel like we're worthy. We don't feel like we measure up. Out of all the deceptions that are used on us, some obvious and, of course, some a little more subtle, the most pervasive deception is to tamper with our understanding of God. You know, there's church services going on all over this morning, all over the world. And listen, I know that I don't have it all right. But the one thing I know, God is love. He cares for you. He's not angry. He's not looking for a way to get you back. But some pictures are being painted, distorted pictures of the face of God. And it happens. We think you have to do in order to get good. You have to do good to get good. But listen to this. Jesus did good to those people before they did any amount of good. Outcasts, rejects, people who had no worthiness in life or in that social status were told, yes, you do. That's why I'm here with you. That's what Jesus did. If we can be convinced that God has rejected us or even that God does not like us or that he does not want us, then game over, man, in my best Bill Paxton voice. But it's game over. Because if you don't see yourself as worthy and loved by the Father, your source, that word Father in the Greek means origin or source. Listen, if you don't know your source, you lose your identity. 
See, it all comes back to identity, doesn't it? We become like the six or seven-year-old Andy sitting alone in his room in tears, feeling shame and rejection, believing lies that weren't true about my identity. And I'm telling you right now, shame and rejection are killers. So in this parable that we covered two weeks ago, how many know there's not just one son, there's two sons? And the story moves on past the prodigal, and the older son takes center stage. Now, if we were to focus on that son's life, I think we could probably change the title. Instead of maybe the prodigal son, it could be the parable of the blind son, a son who couldn't see what was right in front of him. I heard one guy say, we could actually entitle this, the parable of missing the whole point. (laughs) I thought that was good. And think about it. Jesus said there was a man who had... Two sons, not one son, two sons. Because it's important that we see the life of this older son here. This story is not really, though, about either the prodigal or the blind son. I want us to see this this morning. The parable is about the father. The one character in this parable, in this story, that is consistent throughout is the father. His love doesn't change towards either one of his boys. It's the same. His grace doesn't change towards either one of his boys. It's the same. So I want us to see that this morning, that this parable is more about the father than the two sons. He's the central figure, and Jesus is using this father in his relationship with his two sons to reveal to us the shocking truth about God. Now, you got to think, let's get ourselves back for a minute into first century Judaism. Let's get that mindset, because when they heard this story, I mean, we hear it today in the 21st century, like, oh, that's really nice. He had two sons, and one son said, drop dead, dad, I'm taking my inheritance, and oh, that's sweet. No, no, no. In a patriarchal society like this, to hear a story of this boy who brought shame, who disrespected his father, who deserved when he came home to be stoned, in the city streets so everyone could participate and he shows the love that he shows was beyond thinking for the Jewish mind. Then we come to the older son here in the story. So let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. It says, all this time his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. Now, you got to picture this. This guy's out working hard for his dad. We just covered a couple weeks ago. Go on the podcast, check it out on the website. But we see the prodigal son returns. The father immediately, I mean, he cuts him off mid-conversation, mid-rehearsed speech. And he says, give him a robe, give him a ring, put sandals on his feet. In other words, his status has never changed as far as I'm concerned. And then he says, kill the fatted calf. Another, just like in in the story of creation where there was a sacrifice made. Adam and Eve were clothed with animal skins. God made the sacrifice. Who made the sacrifice? God. In the parable, who made the sacrifice? The Father. Who represents? God. Now, are sacrifices to make God okay with us? Or is a sacrifice to make us okay and comfortable with him? The latter. You see this? So God makes the sacrifice. The father makes the sacrifice. So as he approached the house, this is the older son, he heard the music and the dancing. The party was still going on. They were still just mowing down on barbecued beef, having a good time. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. 
the houseboy said this, your brother came home, your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he has him home safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. Did you get that? He refuses to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but look at this, he would not listen. This is crazy. Again, patriarchal society. A father doesn't come out to his boy. But already in the parable, we've seen him run, full sprint, fall upon the neck of his prodigal son, and kiss him over and over and over again. Now he's coming out to his older son who refuses to go in and pleads with him, please come in. Look what the son says. Look how many years I've stayed here serving you. Now, some translations even say slaving for you. You can see his mentality. Never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Can you hear this attitude? I've done all this stuff for you. Where's my party? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with the feast? He's like, come on, dad, this is ridiculous. But look at the father's response. Son, you don't understand. See, he doesn't put him down. He's saying, you don't understand. You can't even see my heart towards you. You can't see my heart towards your younger brother. He says this, you're with me all the time. And get this, everything that is mine is yours. I think this is such a beautiful statement. One translation says, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. Why are you complaining? It's right here for you. You just don't see it. He goes on to say, but this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. I love that. It's like we had to. We couldn't go without a celebration. Why? Your brother had to feel so welcome that he could stand there and say, yes, I am still a son. Nothing has changed. The reason he was acting a fool is because he lost his identity. But we see in the pig pen, it says he came to himself. He started to go, wait a minute. This isn't who I am. And so he returns home. And so the father seals the deal with the robe, the ring, the sandals, and the fatted calf. He says this, this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and he is found. But look at the response of the older brother here. I've slaved for you. I've served you for year upon year upon year. I've never given you any grief, and you couldn't even give me a party. And what of the older brothers of the world? What about the Pharisees, even in our day and time, who create their own religious way to God? They make their lists and they keep them perfectly. What about them? I suspect that Jesus told these stories primarily for the Pharisees that were among the crowd that day. You know, just before these parables, the religious leaders are grumbling about Jesus hanging out with the sinners. Somewhere right around verse 2. This was a response to their grumbling. In fact, I love this in the message. It says it like this. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. I love that, man. It's awesome. Not that they had doubtful reputation, but the fact that they were okay hanging with Jesus. It tells you something about Jesus and how he was, doesn't it? He goes on to 
say this, the Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not pleased at all, and they growled. Listen to this. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Wow. So when they would come up on a crowd of people, Jesus, by the way, is eating with them, which when you eat with someone, you're accepting them. That's a sign of acceptance in this culture. It's saying, hey, you're okay with me, I'm okay with you. This is a big deal. Treating them like old friends. I think we can take a lesson from Jesus here. Because sometimes we, we look around at the news or the people we work with and we go, oh, those people, those Democrats, because you're a Republican. Of course, the Democrats are going, those Republicans. Vote however you want. But God's not Republican or Democrat, just so you know. He's very, very independent. It's called his own kingdom. So maybe we should walk according to that sometimes and get outside those ditches, right? Well, that person's gay because you're straight. But of course, the gay person, oh, they're just straight. Wow. See, we get in our ditches, don't we? See, Jesus accepted people right where they were. And then he allowed them to awaken to their true identity through the loving relationship that he had with them. And we don't even have time today to go through all the lives that were radically changed and transformed. True repentance happens. See, we hear repentance and we're like, repenta, and you add an A at the end, right? And that means you come up to the, the altar and, and you're begging and you're groveling, you're hoping God somehow, somehow will just forgive you. But true repentance is metanoia in the Greek and it means to change your mind. Change how you think. And I think Jesus is calling some of us to change how you think about others. Because the kingdom's not about us and them. It's about all of us together, all included in this love story called the gospel. Amen? But look at their grumbling triggered this story. The response that Jesus had to their grumbling was this story. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. This was his response to their grumbling. That is why the older brother's story comes last. I want us to get this. Jesus knows there are religious people among them hearing this. He knows that the Father is full of grace and love toward them too. See, sometimes when we talk about the Pharisees and the religious, I think we kind of get like this little disdain in our voice. and We're like, oh yeah, they're just a Pharisee. But do you know that Jesus loved the Pharisee as much as the reject? As much as the sinner? As much as the outcast? Do you know there were Pharisees who some had to come in private uh, by cover of night because they believed him, but they didn't know exactly what to do or how to do it because this system was so strong. It had such a stronghold. Everything revolved around the temple. And Jesus is saying stuff like, yeah, this temple is going to be destroyed. What? That was their whole life. But the beauty of it is in the new covenant, we now are the temple. They're not temples made with human hands. It's temples made by God's hands. And now he resides in us and works through us. This is the beauty of the new covenant. This is the beauty of the gospel, the relationship that we now have. He was saying they belong just as the tax collectors and the sinners do. In fact, the father in the story embraces this older son in his religious pride, pleading him to please, please, son, come into the party. 
But the son couldn't see it. He just couldn't see it. I wonder if the Pharisees really got it. I wonder if there was any Pharisees or religious leaders hearing this story that actually saw the truth. I wonder if they saw themselves in the older brother. Think about this. Jesus is the father's arms embracing all of us, including everyone. He is the father's heart inviting the religious among us to put the ledger down and to learn from him about his father's heart. It's not about lists. It's not about the ledger. Put it down. This was the mentality of the older son. I've slaved for you. I've done everything. I haven't caused any grief. Where's my party? Actually, at one point he says, he says you couldn't even give me a measly goat. But, but in that, I see that he didn't even feel worthy enough for the fatted calf. If I could just get the, the meager meat, just get a goat, then I'd feel like I'm somebody. But the father says, listen, you've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. But he couldn't see it. That was his mentality. I think like so many of us who may have more in common with the Pharisees than we do with the wayward son. Jesus wants us to understand that the Pharisees too are already loved and included. You're included. Say, I'm included. Say it again, I'm included. You're included in the gospel story. The gospel, almost too good to be true news. It's so good. Like, are you really sure? <laughs> it's really, really, really good. You are included. You are loved. The grace has been extended to you. It's already been given. All we have to do is awaken to it and say, I believe. And then we receive. That word actually in the Greek means to take, to seize. But some of us are like, I don't know if I'm good enough. It doesn't matter. It's already given. I don't give gifts to my kids on their birthday and Christmas because they deserve them. If that were true, there would be a lot less gifts under the tree. Can I get an amen? Just one amen. <laughs> so why do we think that the Heavenly Father isn't at least as good as us? Who bless our children, who give to our children. I remember having this conversation. Uh, you, you heard this story probably around Christmas time, but my, my youngest, he's eight, he was in the back seat. We were having this conversation about Santa coming. Yes, we do off on a shelf and Santa and all that. You can forgive me for that later. But he was so excited about it. I said, you know what, though? And I use these as, as teaching opportunities. I said, you know what? Santa's cool, but I have a little beef with him. And he goes, what, what do you mean with Santa? Why do you have an issue with Santa? I said, well, Santa has a list, and he checks it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. He's like, yeah. So he gives you gifts if you're good enough. He said, yep. I said, well, then it's not a gift. He's like, what? I said, it's a reward. I said, gifts are freely given, regardless if you deserve them or not. And he went, what? He says, you know what? He says, on Christmas Eve, Dad, I'm writing the letter to Santa, and I'm going to tell him he can't call them gifts anymore. He has to call them rewards. <laughs> He's getting it. But see, in that moment, I said something to him. I said, you know what, son? I said, God is a giver of gifts, and they're free. His love is free. His grace is free. Relationship with him is completely free. 
There's nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to deserve it. He says, you deserve it. I accept you where you are. Will you believe? Big difference. But the story's not over. So we have this older son. He has his list in his hand. He's working in the fields. He's carrying out his duties. He hears this music and dancing, and he calls to one of the servants. Give me an explanation. What's going on? Why is there a party? I'm out working, and there's a party. And he says, listen, your brother has come home. Your father has commanded a feast. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. We will feast and celebrate that the son has returned. When the older son heard of the father's party that he threw, you know what? He became enraged. He was frustrated. He was infuriated. What did the son say? He goes, this is how I pictured. He's like, you know what, dad? You ever said it like that to your dad? I did one time. <laughs> it should tell me something because my kids, they say it more often than they should. I try to show grace, right? Sometimes they have something they want to get off their chest. Explain yourself. That's okay. But sometimes close your lips because you're going to get in more trouble, right? But I just picture the son saying, you know what, dad? I've never once disobeyed you. I've never once ever, ever done anything wrong. I'm working for you, and you can't even give me a measly goat. See, he missed it. He didn't get it. Now, notice here that he didn't say, you never should have done this for my brother. He never once says, you shouldn't have did that for him. He says, you never threw a party for me. I've been slaving away my whole life. And right then and there, we see his mentality. He was in the father's house. He must have saw inklings of the grace and love of the father, especially the way that he accepted the son who should have been stoned according to the law. But yet in the midst of all that, he can't even see it. A slave living in the house. See, the younger brother was a slave in a far country, or we could say a slave to the world. But the older brother was a slave at his father's house, or we could say on the front row of the church service. See, whether you're a slave in a far-off country or you're a slave in the front row of a church, both of them were estranged from the father's love because they lost their identity. And that's really what this is about. We've talked now for, this is the third week, about this lie that we believe of separation. We've been told that sin separates us from God, but that's the truth. When Adam and Eve sinned, who ran? They did. Who came to them? God. Who offered a sacrifice? God. Who clothed them? And guess who went out of the garden with them? We can see it. And when Cain is debating on this whole uh, kill and Abel thing, God says, Cain, just like a good father, listen, sin crouches at the door looking for opportunity. Listen, son, let me help you here. And even after the murder, it's a murder. God puts a mark on his head of protection. God didn't go anywhere. I'm telling you, this is hard for people to swallow. What religion does is it preaches the cancer and the cure. You're separated. God wants nothing to do with you. But hey, look at over here. If you come to church enough, if you give enough, if you do enough works, you can be saved and even keep your salvation. Isn't that wonderful? Ding, 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 ding. You're a winner. 
but there's no separation. I like the word estrangement better. See, the definition of estrangement is you no longer feel part of a group or friendship. And so what happened is they believed the lie. They fell into this idea of shame and they sinned and they ran and they hid and the guilt and shame were covering them. They even sewed together fig leaves to try to cover themselves. And what did God do? No, no, no. Let's get rid of this self-effort. Let me clothe you. Let me clothe you. Let me cover you. Let me be your protection. Let me be your father. That's what a good father does. He dresses his kids, doesn't he? And so that's the beauty of the story. But estrangement is this wicked thing. We think that God wants nothing to do with us. But even Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And, and he even identifies, he, he preaches grace so good that people go, hey, so should we sin more? And he's like, uh, certainly not. You're not getting the point here. But the point is you can't out the love of God. And so what happens is when you come into this relationship with God, here I am trying to qualify it so people don't go, Pastor Andy said sin's great because grace just shows up in like huge heaping bounds when you sin. No, no, no. I'm saying that grace teaches us to say no to sin. When you awaken to your true identity, you go, I'm not built for that. That's not who I am. I'm making better choices. Why? Because now you understand your true identity in Christ. Telling you, it works better than pointing your finger at people and doing whack-a-mole preaching. What's going on in the congregation? I don't know. Okay, let's whack that one for a while. Oh, what's going on now? Oh, we'll whack that one for a while. No, no, no. I want you to know that you are loved by God, that you are pleasing, holy, acceptable, and he loves you. Because when you do, you will start to act differently. Your actions will come out of your true identity. Does that make sense? See, religious attitudes will make us blind to the Father's goodness. And it's goodness that is freely given. We see the reckless love of Father here in this parable. I know some people, they struggle with that word reckless. But think about people at the time who saw this Father loving his sons when they didn't deserve it. In this culture, that's reckless. You can't do that. They think they can get away with anything. No, 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 no. They actually were awakening to who they truly were. That's what the love of God does for us. It's not a list of rules. Listen, do we, do we follow laws? One law. Jesus gave us one command. He said, love others as I have loved you. Do you know what the law of love is now sown into your heart? So when you awaken to who you are, you start to live a life that's out of love. Guess what? You won't do the things you used to do. You won't treat people the way you used to treat them. Because now you're living a life out of love. Not rules, not tablets of stone, thou shalt not. Right? The, the law was beautiful at that time. It was necessary at that time. But even, even the writer of Hebrews said it is obsolete now. It's no longer, I mean, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices. By AD 70, all that was wiped off the map. Done deal. Will you awaken to this new covenant, this new way of living, where now my law of love is written in your heart. So live by that. We see God's love covering without proof of repentance. This is huge to me. Okay. When he came to Adam and Eve, there was no repentance. There was just fear, guilt, and shame. But his love covered. The prodigal son, he had rehearsed a speech. The boy was starving. He was in a pig pen for a Jewish boy. That wasn't really good. 
And he comes home, but the father cuts him off in the middle of a speech. As soon as he tries to say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he goes, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals. Why? I don't want him thinking he's not worthy. He ran to the son before the speech, ran to him, fell upon him, kissed him, showed love before repentance. This is huge. The eldest son, no repentance, prideful, religious heart, and the father comes to him and shows him love. Why? Love changes everything. Do you see this? It's not fear. In fact, the Apostle John tells us that there is no fear in love. So if you're hearing messages that bring fear, that bring uh, just this, this sense of being scared of God, it's not love. It's not the gospel. It's not. And I know plenty of people have been feared into the kingdom. Here's the problem with that. When you're feared into the kingdom, you are born of fear, you live a life of fear. You keep trying to measure up and be good enough. But man, when you're brought in in love, I tell you what, I've seen the difference. Even in my own life, it's like things that I used to do and say and think, I just don't do anymore. And I'm not even trying not to do them. It's just, it's so beautiful. It's like his love is so great. It wells up within you and you saturate in it and you look at people like you never looked at people before. You don't look down your nose at people. And we've talked about this a lot. Even if, because you know what, there's two ditches, right? You've got the legalistic, the law Pharisee, but there's grace Pharisees too. That was me. When I first discovered this grace of God, I would look down my nose. I would point my fingers at people who believe differently than me. And God said, huh, if you're a grace guy, then why don't you show some? And so wherever people are on the journey, I love them where they are. But as far as I'm concerned here at Faith City Church, we're not preaching fear, hellfire, brimstone. I'm preaching the love of God. And I want you to discover your true identity because when you do, you will change like you've never changed before. I like what one guy said. It's almost by accident. Like, how am I living like this? How am I not giving into that addiction and those temptations? It's love, baby. Love has transformed you. It's beautiful. It's not necessarily sin that keeps the older brother from his father's house, but it's his pride. Can you see that? It's his pride. Write this down. Humility is the doorway to receiving. Humility is the doorway to receiving. Humility has a way of removing blinders from our eyes. We see this principle scattered all throughout the New Testament, including James. James says this in James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? He resists the proud. Uh, some versions say he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I want us to understand something here. Words do matter. And so when we see that, it can be like, yeah, he opposed you. He stands against you. But we have to have a proper understanding of what this means. It also looks like, well, God gives you grace if you're humble enough. See, I believe that the grace has already been given. But it's only through humility, being humble, that you can see it and you can receive it. But this word resist here, opposes, in the Greek is the word antitasso, and it means to range and battle against, to oppose one's self. I've talked about this idea of resisting before, but it's not that the Father's resisting us. 
He's resisting our wrong attitude. He's saying, no, no, no. That attitude's not right. I, I think about with my own kids. How many have kids here? You know, when your kids get out of line and they act whack and crazy and act like fools, never once did I say, that's it. You're no longer Brancic. Get out of my house. But daddy, I'm four. You know, I mean, <laughs> never once have I said, you're no longer Brancic. You're not allowed in this home. Why? Because you messed up. But what I do is I sit down with them and I say, that action, that attitude, it doesn't line up with the Brancic household. Okay, Dad, you understand? It doesn't line up with who we are. So I'm opposing that attitude. I'm opposing that action, but I will never oppose you. I love you. And because I love you, I discipline you. And proper discipline isn't punishing for your past. It's training you for your future. Big difference. And so that's how God deals with us. So God isn't opposing or resisting us. He's resisting the attitude. He's resisting the issues that we have. I resist this current attitude or action. It isn't acceptable as an attitude or action in this household, in this kingdom. Father is resisting the older brother's attitude of pride, selfishness, and unforgiveness. You can see God here. He's, he's trying to share with these Pharisees and religious people this truth. He leaves the story to where the elder son does not enjoy the father's love or his forgiveness or his delight. Think about this. The story ends with no reconciliation. That's wild to me. Because we see that the father extends reconciliation but how many know that we have to conciliate to receive and be in it? It's already provided. But if you don't believe it, you won't walk in it. Does that make sense? The older son was being reconciled. Think about this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconciled means to bring into favor. He was bringing us all into favor with him. But guess what? Some don't know it yet. That's why we're ministers of reconciliation not ministers of hellfire and brimstone, ministers of good news. God has made everything right between him and you, and he did it, and there's nothing you can do about it except believe and step into it. So will you. That's a gospel that people can receive, right? Where's the repentance? As soon as they change their mind and believe, repentance. I mean, that's repentance. It's It's beautiful. I changed my mind. I believe God's story now, not my own story. It's so cool. But both sons were trying to get into the position of telling father what to do. Both did this. One did by being bad or loose living. One did by being good or moral living. Both were self-serving for their own purposes. But look at the difference in the final decisions here of the sons. The younger son presented himself in humility and received the grace of the father. The older son would not humble himself and thus did not receive the grace of the father, which, by the way, the grace that was already there. You've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. You just don't see it. Final scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the what? The gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. How many know we can't work for our own salvation? It doesn't work. 
Look at this. I want you to hear this part, though. Context is important. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. What? Look at this. Which God prepared beforehand. He looked at you and said, I got some good works for you. Oh, I got some fruit for you. How many times have you been told you need the fruit of the Spirit? You need to get that fruit of the Spirit growing. You need to do the fruit of the Spirit. And you're like, okay, love, 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 love. That's the first one. Must be the most important, which it is, by the way. And you're trying to love and trying to, trying to, trying to. And you're trying to do some type of franken fruit because it's the fruit of the Spirit. He's already put it in you. The good works, the fruit, it's there. And what are we told to do? Work out our salvation. Salvation in the Greek is healing, restoration, rescue, deliverance, wholeness. See, sometimes we make it all about an afterlife, sweet by and by. And Jesus prayed that we would bring heaven to earth. Live it now. Work out healing, preservation, safety, wholeness, deliverance. Now, here and now. And there's people around you who are starving for deliverance, safety, healing, and wholeness. And it works through us. So I want us to see this, that we're not saved by works, but sometimes you get into, you know, some, it's funny, there's so many sections of the grace camp now. You know, we just preach the gospel as far as I'm concerned. I'm not trying to get on their labels. But you have grace, but you you just say the word, hey, man, did you go to work? Oh, don't say work. We don't do works. Oh, yeah, we do. We do good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we should walk into them. What? So we do works, but we don't work for salvation. We receive everything that he's given us for life and godliness, and now we work that out. That's the beauty of the gospel. He's given you everything you need. And guess what? Even the faith you have to believe is a gift from him. Come on, someone. Humility is the only way to receive his grace. It's always been there, but you only can connect, receive, and walk in it with a humble heart. See, sin is not just breaking God's law. It's acting as your own savior. Uh, Whether we, we break laws and we set our own course or we keep all the moral laws and we come to church every Sunday, we work in the God forsaken kids department and we change diapers, whatever it is, being very, very good. Jesus is showing us that both can be wrong. Where's your attitude? Where is your heart? And get this, the father cares for both. So listen, the gospel is not about morality or immorality. The gospel is about everyone being loved and called wherever we are in every facet of life. So you have an elder brother. He sees the world as good people versus bad people. You have the younger who sees open-minded versus closed-minded. But Jesus is saying that only the humble will receive the grace that has already been freely given. It still blows my mind that we leave the elder brother without reconciliation. I mean, the story ends right here, but maybe, just maybe, Jesus is showing us that the elder brother, his attitude toward life may be a more dangerous position because you can't even see the salvation. You can't even see the grace right in front of you. 
So don't give into the temptation of shame. Don't be tricked out of your identity. Remember, the humble receive his grace. Amen. Will you pray with me? My wife and I were watching a movie last night. It's really funny to me how you can watch a movie and receive all these like spiritual principles. You hear one line, you're like, that's the gospel. And we're watching this movie and there's this lady who she hadn't accomplished much in her life and she felt complete shame. She said this, I feel ashamed, I feel guilty. I feel like I just can't be who I truly am because of these things or this thing that I've done. And this gentleman in the movie says this line to her. Now listen to this. This this is huge. He says, you were always good enough. You were the one who doubted it. Now close your eyes. I want you to hear the father's voice saying this to you. You were always good enough. You were the only one who doubted it. I believe the Father's trying to awaken us to something this morning. You're not unworthy because I've made you worthy. You are my son. You are my daughter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we can come together. We can look into the scriptures. We can hear the voice of the Spirit. I pray that freedom has transpired. I pray that repentance is happening right now, that we are changing our minds about you and about ourselves. We're beginning to see the true identity that you built us in. And for those of us who are struggling with this unworthy feeling or with guilt or shame, I come against that right now in the name of Jesus. I thank you for peace in our hearts right now. The Prince of Peace, Jesus, you reside in us. Spirit, you are here because we're here. You promised you'd never leave us. You'd never forsake us. And so we say we trust you. We believe you. We believe your story about us. Every Sunday, I love to do this. Just place your hand on your heart. We're just going to make a confession together. Confession means to say the same thing as another. We're going to say what God says about us. So just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. It's abundant and it's sufficient. If there's anything in my heart, any lie that I'm believing about myself, Holy Spirit, expose that. Show that to me. Not for shame, but for healing. And Jesus, I give you permission to heal that area of my life. Show me the truth about myself. And I say with my mouth, I trust you. I believe you. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Isn't God good? For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.